This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad. And I want to talk a bit about booster shots for people over 65. Uh, The government still is looking at that here in Canada, but I have friends who are snowbirds who've already had them or are planning to get them. Now, all the evidence is around the Pfizer vaccine and people who received two doses one month apart. Many of us here at home are in a different situation. And uh, of course, there is some evidence that a bigger interval between the shots is actually more protective. Now, also, I want to touch on a new study from the National Institute on Aging, which finds that 75% of adults say the pandemic has made them more concerned about their family's financial security, especially when it comes to the cost of aging in place. So, a lot to chew over there. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Hey, guys. Hello, Libby. Hi, everyone. Well, let's begin with this question of booster shots. And top of mind, very sad news today that Colin Powell, the first black American secretary of state, died of complications of COVID and he was vaccinated. So I think that's uh, making a lot of people go, hmm, David. I think you're right. I think that the... uh the it's it's intuitively uh logical and i think the evidence is there that that booster shot uh is valuable the problem is that there are so many other variables that it's very hard for a layman to say you know statistically we absolutely must get this because as you pointed out earlier libby how far apart were the shots i had what were the vaccines i took what is the combination now we're going to drop the flu vaccine uh it's flu season into the mix what is that going to do i don't think there's uh you know one medical story that everybody can uh, hang on to so i think we have to just keep our eyes open and, and watch and see uh and then jump at the first opportunity that the government makes this available to everyone yeah okay i i tried to i mean as i said the the actual evidence is based on pfizer and getting two shots one month apart of right. course a lot of us here have had astrazeneca uh or even with the others longer intervals apart three months apart so uh last week before we take the conversation to the other two guys i tried to uh get a fix from dr peter uni who is the head of the science advisory table let's hear what what he had to say. I think if if people just received AstraZeneca one and two, and uh, then it, and have a, an easy access to a third shot, and that's a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, go for it. Okay, well there you go, and it wasn't easy to get that out of him. Let me tell you, <laughs> um, Bill, what's your take on this? Well, uh, you're right, David's uh, David's right. It's a real conundrum for. Uh, older Canadians who are concerned about uh, trying to to uh, wade through all the information that they're they're getting, uh, they understand that uh, um, you know m- most older people who are getting infected now uh, are getting infected because they thought they were safe with the two vaccines they've already had, but. Uh, we're told that when you're over 65, even though you've got uh, two shots, some doctors are even saying you should pretend you're not uh, vaccinated. Uh, if you can't get a third shot, 
Uh, you have to act like you haven't been vaccinated because you may not be protected. And that's really confusing information from our, well, a lot it, of our people who aren't able to, uh, to wade through the information that you've been able to, uh, Libby, in the last couple of weeks. Okay, well, just to clarify, uh, that's one doctor in Newfoundland, right? Uh, one one doctor in, in Newfoundland that I'm uh, that I'm quoting there, but there uh, this there are other uh, uh, information that we've had that says that, that it's still you know the the situation of uh, not uh, not everyone having had the same two vaccines, uh, not having them the same distance apart, not being sure whether or not they can can or should. Uh, get a booster and and uh, you know people can't take for granted that just because they have two vaccines uh, they're fully they're fully protected well the the numbers peter show that you are protected against severe disease uh, to the tune of 96 <clears throat> percent excuse me we know that older people's immune systems aren't as good and of course we've just seen this issue with colin powell he was 84 by the way, but but the numbers do show you're 96 percent, uh, you know, protected from severe disease and hospitalization. Uh, what do you make of this? Well, I, I mean, that that was the goal of the um, the, the initial vaccine rollout. It, it wasn't to reduce uh, cases to zero, as as David always points out. It, it was. Um, to reduce hospitalizations and death, and and you know um, from from the studies I've read, the the existing vaccines seem to be doing that job. Is is that um, people may be getting it, but they're getting much less severe cases of it. They're staying out of hospital, and uh, not everyone, obviously, but but it, it's it's generally the two shots are generally doing a good job in protecting people from the worst. Uh, the worst situation possible. So, um, but but then there are cases of people who who are have you know immune issues and people living in uh, congregate settings like uh, long term long people living in long term care. So so it seems to me that the governments are going to focus on long term care with the booster shot, and that um, whether it, it rolls out to the general population, I'm a little bit doubtful on that. Whether we even need it, you know. Well, they are already uh, giving the third shot to people in long-term care and people who are immunocompromised. I guess the question for the rest of us, uh, like I said, David, I know snowbirds. Uh, I know people who actually made a special trip to get a third shot. Yeah, I do but, too. Yeah. yeah, but but actually, at, at this point, you know, a lot of people are going. People were starting to travel again. And, uh, you know, myself included, I think, well, I would certainly not make a special trip, but if I'm already there and all you have to do is pop into a pharmacy why not I, th- I think that's I think that's exactly right and I think that what we're going to see is as the uh, hospitalizations drop and as the um, severity dropped or the death rates drop which they already are you're going to see exactly what you've described as individual decision making it's no different than the flu vaccine they get the shot don't get the shot you get the vaccine and you still get flu, so some number greater than zero every season gets flu in spite of the vaccine. Some number of people die during the flu season. And I think we're in that zone now where the the sweeping, raging pandemic effect, if I can use that phrase, is kind of abating. And now it's these individual situations and these individual uh, decisions. In my case, I had one Pfizer and one Moderna. Well, where does that mean? The doctor you quoted had two Pfizer's back or two AstraZeneca's back to back. So there's so many different individual permutations and combinations. I don't see uh, uh, it's going to be an individual thing. Abundance of caution, get the booster. No, I'm fine. I don't need the booster. You're going to have huge populations in both camps. Yeah, Bill, um, you seem to be concerned that that um, people will want to stay or or think they should stay isolated. Yeah, I think so. And one of the problems, and I, you know, not to take exception with my my good friend David says there is a real risk in comparing COVID to the flu, and uh, and and people are doing that, and and they're not. 
the same kind of illness or not the same severity at all. And we can't use the, the habits that we've developed in terms of taking the, getting the flu vaccine and apply them the same way to, uh, uh, to, to COVID. Uh, COVID, although you're less likely if you've had even two, uh, uh, two shots, to get to uh, get COVID, and even though it might be a a, a lighter uh, um, uh, cause uh, or a lighter effect on you, uh, the fact is that COVID could still be a killer for people who are um, uh, who are of an age or are at risk. And one of the things that our members at CARP worry about is whether or not, once again, uh, we're going to think that only the people who are in uh, 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 congregant care settings are also at risk. People who are staying in their own homes, who have different people coming in to help them uh, all the time as those restrictions lift, can also be uh, very much, uh, very much at, at risk. So. Uh, I think the word still is very much a caution, and our our members are saying from what they're hearing, they're not confident yet that they can return to any kind of reasonable facsimile of the life that they had pre-COVID. Well, you know, one of the big ironies, of course, is right now, certainly here, you need a vaccine passport to do all kinds of fun things, like going out to dinner or to a show, but people who deliver home care are not required to be vaccinated. So you might be more at risk in your own home than outside, which to me, it just boggles the mind. At least in long-term care, they now have mandatory vaccination. But wow, this is, I mean, to me, like, don't even get me started on that. (laughs) Um, Let us move along to this new report by the National Institute on Aging. So it says uh, that 75% of people are now starting to be concerned about the cost of aging in place. And, you know, if you have any sense of it, it's a big cost. Peter? Yeah, it's a, it's a big cost. And, and part, of, part of the reason is that um, a lot more people want to avoid going into long-term care. No kidding. So, so they, they'd rather age at home. And um, the fact of the matter is it's much cheaper to go into long-term care than it is to try to age at home in, in the current uh, funding system. So um, it's, it's no wonder people are worried. Like, they, they would rather avoid going into a nursing home, but uh, the question is, how are they going to afford to stay at home? And uh, only the very well-heeled can, uh, can do that, I think. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, in this, I saw a number that said that getting the amount of home care that's equivalent to what you would get in long-term care, which is not up to snuff, by the way, would be about $3,000 a month. Uh, I would even dispute that. I mean, uh, I think when I was very ill uh, now 12 years ago, I got 24-hour care at home for one month. And, you know, I probably could have done with less. I'll say it cost $10,000. Right. So... Right, and that's that's gone up since then too. I, right? I yeah. would think it's gone yeah. up since then. So, and then there's the whole issue, and and people have to prepare sooner. I mean, you know, there are things that you have to do to your house, and there are you know bits and of, of incentive programs for those types of renovations. But you know, part of the problem is that people don't think about it until they absolutely need it. David. Well, it's true, and, and there are some insurance products that are coming onto the market. Carp offers one that will that you can subscribe to, uh, you know, in your way decades younger to, to prepare the day. But don't forget that aging at home uh, is a subset, an important one, but nevertheless a subset of aging without an income, of retirement period, of longevity period. So uh, if your salary disappears, whether it was salary commission, whether your monthly income disappears and you're left with Canada pension, maybe you have a private pension, the vast majority do not, where do you get the funds to live on when your income ceases, when you're now looking, a 65-year-old could be looking at 20-plus years uh, of no income. Try 30, David. Tired. Where's the money coming from? 30 years. Well, and, and yeah. well, presumably people have some retirement savings, but 
not enough. Not definitely not enough. And and uh, as a result, what we're seeing is a blend. And this is what we're going to be seeing going forward. This absolute: you're retired, you're not retired. That's what's going to cease. And you're going to see all kinds of hybrid models of part-time side hustles, full-time. Uh, they've got to keep the money coming in to support. Uh, being alive into your 80s and 90s, and never mind all the things you've got to do to have a quality of life at home, which makes it even more expensive. So there's no question that uh, there's a high level of anxiety. It's completely unsurprising. Yeah, is, is, is this might be a boon to the financial planning I mean, industry. One of the criticisms in this report is that this is one thing that financial planners do not take into account in general. Bill? Yeah, that's, they, they say that. Now, we're dealing with a number of financial planners who, who are taking this into consideration. So I'm not, uh, I'm not sure that that's universally true. Uh, the the uh, more salient point, I think, is that uh, older Canadians are not asking their financial planners again uh, for a reevaluation of where they stand uh, in terms of their retirement now. They retired uh, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, they knew at that time that they their money would last uh, uh, throughout their, their life, and they haven't gone back and looked at it again. And uh, as they do that, uh, they're finding that uh, now that people are living longer, costs are... Uh, our uh, costs of living are going up, especially uh, for uh, older Canadians in, in many, many ways. And they're feeling, uh, when they look at that, they're feeling less secure. In fact, we did a survey of our CART members uh, last spring, and uh, about 30% of them uh, were, were saying they, they weren't comfortable that they were going to be financially secure. Uh, if this survey uh, is similarly representative, it's gone up. Uh, another 10% or so, we're going to do a survey again this fall and ask some specific questions around this uh, whole area because when we overall survey uh, CART members across the country, they tell us their number one concern uh, isn't health care uh, or the environment, which are in the top three. Their number one concern is financial security. Uh, so certainly they're, they're becoming yeah, more, more concerned and doubtful about whether or not they're going to be able to have uh, be able to, or will have to, outlive their money. Uh, Peter, I mean, you know, we've been hearing about big increases in the cost of food, cost of other things. And I'm sure that is really a big concern for people who are living on a fixed income. And, and I think uh, Bill made a good point there. It's like with everything else, you have to uh, reevaluate. And I guess a lot of people don't quite take that into account. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, because I, I was at the uh, I was at the grocery store the other day, and I saw bacon on sale for seven ninety nine. And a pack of bacon in my life has never cost seven ninety nine, <laughs> and, and now it's on sale for seven ninety nine. So I, I it's not that good for you. <laughs> no, it's not good for you, but it, but it, it kind of threw me. And and um, you know, it, it's not just limited to bacon. Chicken is more expensive these days. Uh, meat, all, all kinds of meat. All are, meat, are, yeah. Yeah. Gas is up, way up, of course. Um, you know, um, cars are up, furniture's up, everything's up. And um, and and basically, it, it's it's hitting people who have fixed incomes the hardest because they they don't they won't get a raise in salary or a, you know it, it, they won't be able to absorb these costs because they're living on fixed incomes and um it's it's very worrisome and like the people are suggesting it's only temporary as the economy recovers from from two years of lockdown and supply chain issues and it'll work its way out of the system but um some people are suggesting no it's here now and uh we're going to go through an inflationary period and that of course hits older people the hardest yeah and when have you last seen prices actually roll back even at you know whatever that is walmart when they take two cents off (laughs) no more than that no exactly so so it, it is definitely a worrisome trend um you know 
you know, so some economists say it's going to sort itself out, and it's only temporary. But but we'll have to, uh, you know, no, the government's going to be monitoring this closely. Um, let me just take a call from Jim, and we'll get back to this conversation. Hi, Jim. Hi. How are you? Fine. How are you? Fine. Thank you. My my question is, I got my second uh, vaccine back in July. I'm a senior. I had two Pfizer's now. What is the optimal time to get the booster? Should I get it now if I have the opportunity, or should I wait? Or? Uh, the, what the evidence found with Pfizer, which is uh, pretty clear, is that the immunity starts to wane in around six months. So uh, you sh- six months after the second shot. So um, that's when you should get a booster if, if you uh, have access to one. Okay. So I shouldn't, if I have access in the next month or so, I shouldn't get it then. Uh, yeah, that's it's early. Even in Israel, they they gave it to people. I guess starting at five months after. Five months. Okay, thank you very much. You're very welcome. All righty, we can go back to our other conversation about uh, about money. And uh, David, you were saying you don't think that uh, there's such a thing as having it work its way out of well, the system. No, I, I, I'm seeing a lot more articles now. I track this pretty carefully and. Uh, some financial planners are, have actually read articles that, that a very important part of your retirement planning, and this will come as a shock, a very important part of your retirement planning is work. <laughs> taking that into account. Uh, just, just to hit one number real quick, and because I, I looked this up in preparation for this, 10 years ago there was 4.7 million Canadians over the age of 65. 91% of them were part-time or full-time retired, which means that 9% or about 400,000 were still working. Today, there's 6.9 million over 65, and 84% are part or full retired, which means 16%, almost double, are still working, which means we have 1.1 million seniors over the age of 65 who are still working. I think going for, I think the worst place now is if you're in your, and I, man, I hate to say this, but if you're in your mid to late 60s, early 70s, you're kind of trapped between the former model and the model that is emerging. If you're in your 50s, you have time to take into account that, hey, if you're going to live to 90, uh, you're not likely to have enough money to have no income coming in for a quarter of a century. So you better plan on some sort of ongoing process of, of generating income in addition to your pension or your return on your assets, your reverse mortgage, your, whatever it is. But longevity means the need for more money for longer. There's just no escaping it. Well, that's right. And I think it's already happened, if we're speaking about financial planning, uh, that, you know, I remember when I was a business reporter, sort of the standard advice for people who was retiring is like, you sell your your equities, your, 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 your uh, holdings in the market, you go to really safe things when you are no longer earning money. And that certainly has changed as especially in our almost zero-interest environment these days. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. People have to take on more risk as they get older. And uh, they're sort of at the mercy of the, you know, the, the volatility of the stock market. So that it's not a great uh, situation, but it, it's reality, though. You're right. Yeah. It that, is one of the things that, that most worries uh, seniors, because what they see in the day-to-day of, of how their money doing more most closely is the interest they're getting on what they thought were very safe investments that would pay off over the years. And now they're seeing these minuscule uh, uh, returns on their investment and, and uh, hardly know where to turn. Yeah. And the, I mean, this year, until the third quarter, the stock market was, wow, gangbusters. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And now, and now to that point, to that point, the last month or so, the volatility has been insane and very, if you want to be nervous, I mean, up 400, down 400, up 300 points, down 400 points. It's, it's, it's very difficult to know what to do because there, there feels like there's no floor. You don't know what's going to happen from day to day. So if you don't have a good income coming in, if you're not still fully employed earning a good income, you could go from, you know, elation to despondency and back again several times a week. 
Yeah. You know, uh, it's, it's difficult. I mean, and you, you, you make an interesting point about the number of Zoomers who are still working at least to some degree. So my question is, you know, it's great if you can get the work, but, but is the work there for everyone who wants it? Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't necessarily, I mean, there's ageism. There certainly is, and we're hearing that from our members. And in spite of the crying need for workers, if you're over the age of 60, uh, they're finding it very difficult for people even to talk to them about uh, hiring them. And this, this surprises. We thought that with the, with especially in the hospitality sector, that uh, our older members would be able to to find employment much more easily. They are uh, telling us this is not not happening. They're still being turned away because of their age. Well, you know, never mind 60, I think uh, 50 for sure. David? I think you're right. Uh, I think it is a big problem. I think that the it's not very much comfort in a short term, but I think the mega trend, the big trend, is that this will be less of a problem because the pressure on finding more uh, workers and keeping older workers working longer will eventually overwhelm the ageism. I, there's a ready report, I think, last week from Quebec that they said that well, the only way they can, they can uh, meet the demand for workers will be to have more older workers in the workforce. So the long-term trend, I think, this will start to flatten itself out. But in the short term to medium term, there still is this mismatch between where it's going and where it is now. And getting over that bridge is where all the difficulties are going to come. Well, and it's interesting, you know, we haven't touched on this, but one of the the COVID phenomenon that we keep are hearing more and more and more about is what they're calling the big quit. And there's labor shortages everywhere. So uh, maybe uh, that's going to be good news for our demographic. I think it definitely will be. Well, uh, yeah, and and I think that that the that positive note, uh, you know, is probably a good thing to end our Monday chat on. So I'm going to go around, Peter. What would you like to leave us with? Yeah, well, I was just going to say that that's a positive note, and um, you know, uh, just if you're if you're looking for work, if you're worried about getting work, I I think like David said, wait wait a bit. Um, The the uh, mood will change. Ageism will dissipate when the uh, the need for workers reaches critical uh, mass, and and, uh, and and I think it's going to be a great market for older workers. Bill, Peter's right. Uh, don't uh, give up. Uh, the jobs will uh, be there if you if you want them, and uh, uh, sooner sooner rather than later. And David, if you're uh, within ten years of the traditional retirement of sixty five, if you're fifty five in that band immediately have a plan B that sees you keep working until you're in your 70s because if you're going to live to 90 uh, there's not that many people out there that can go a quarter of a century with no income and just live off the interest so I think you need to have a plan B that says uh, my retirement plan is to keep working. Okay, yeah, that sounds good to me. Thank you so much Peter Mugridge, Bill Van Gorder and David Kravitz. Thank you. Okay. All right. We end that on a positive note, and we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we will try to make sense of confusing health news, and that is about that low dose of aspirin that people at high risk of heart disease uh, have been routinely prescribed. Well, mm, not anymore when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. For years, it was seen as cheap and easy intervention to prevent heart disease. Now a U.S. panel of experts is backing away from the use of low-dose aspirin and telling doctors to stop prescribing it routinely for people at high risk. There's mounting evidence that the risk of serious side effects like life-threatening bleeding far outweighs the benefits. And the U.S. panel apparently also plans to retreat from its 2016 recommendation to take baby aspirin for the prevention of colorectal cancer. 
Now, this is still a draft from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, and it follows years of changes in advice by several leading medical organizations, and some of them had already recommended limiting the use of low-dose aspirin as a preventive tool. So, if you've got questions, call us, 416 416- Three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty and now to clear up any confusion let's go to Dr. Chiming Chow, attending staff cardiologist at St. Michael's Hospital and a full professor in the Department of Medicine, University of Toronto, and Dr. Mike Farku, a cardiologist at Peter Monk Chair in Multinational Clinical Trials. Doctors, thank you so much for being with us. Hello, Libby. Great to be here for having me. Okay, let us begin with uh, Dr. Chow. So what is your reaction to this? Um, this is, uh, I think, a long-term coming. And from the medical community, we uh, recognize that, you know, aspirin is, uh, while it could be a panacea but, uh, for many years, but it also has harm as well. Uh, because we know that aspirin can have an uh, increased risk uh, up to about 1% of bleeding, uh, especially among older people. So uh, even with the uh, most recent uh, Diabetes uh, Canada guideline, uh, uh, even among patients with diabetes, uh, unless you have a heart attack, stroke, or uh, peripheral vascular, disease, uh, aspirin is not indicated. So I think, you know, this is um, something that uh, the uh, public should know uh, because many uh, people actually started aspirin on their own because they think taking one aspirin a day is good because this is what they have been told for many years. And now we have to make sure that uh, people recognize it. Uh, it's not something that you should take on your own and uh, people should consult their physicians to see if it's appropriate for them. Okay. Uh, Dr. Farku, now uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but as a layperson, I remember not that long ago, uh, there was all kinds of marketing touting low-dose aspirin basically for everybody, whether you had a risk or not. Uh, That was cut back, that it was recommended for people at risk uh, fairly recently. And now the word is uh, basically don't do it unless you're already, don't do it preventively. Correct? Well, let me, let me, uh, and uh, this is, uh, this is an important milestone in in the history of aspirin. Uh, There are a number of important caveats here. Number one, this is a recommendation for primary prevention. That is, individuals who have not had a heart attack, a stroke, or any cardiovascular... Okay, I'm sorry, Dr. Farku, I have to uh, interrupt you. Are you on a speakerphone? Yeah. Okay, so we'll call you back on a headset, because it's very hard to hear on that, okay? Okay, let us uh, continue with Dr. Chow. Uh, So, uh, again, uh, are there still patients with certain profiles that you are keeping on this regimen? Yeah, as Dr. Fakou was trying to uh, start to say, I think this particular recommendation focuses on people, uh, what we call uh, primary prevention. And among people who have had uh, a diagnosis of heart attack or uh, blockages in their coronary arteries or people who have a history of stroke or a small stroke like TIA or blockage in their, uh, 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 the brain vessels uh, or uh, blockage in the leg vessels or peripheral, artery, uh, peripheral arteries, then uh, aspirin is indicated. But uh, among people who have never had uh, any of the above, uh, heart, prob- uh, heart attacks or, uh, or angina or strokes, uh, then aspirin uh, has to be uh, uh, considered uh, individually. Um, I think, you know, one of the major recommendations uh, in this guideline uh, or draft is that people above 60 uh, should not be routinely taking aspirin. Among people are 40 to 59, then uh, among people that are higher risk of having uh, heart disease uh, should be considered and individualized. Mm-hmm. Um, and so does the risk go up a lot as you get older? Well, it goes both ways. Uh, and uh, among people, as we get older, uh, the risk of having uh, strokes and heart attacks uh, or blockage in arteries actually goes up uh, because we accumulate all these risk factors over the years. But also bleeding uh, also goes up as well. Uh, and uh, we know that uh, especially among people more than 60, 
then the bleeding risk from taking aspirin also goes up, uh, maybe even more than the protective effect uh, of taking aspirin prevent heart attacks uh, or strokes. Mm-hmm. And uh, how does the risk of bleeding uh, present? Does it happen if you're having some kind of procedure or it's just uh, like a hemorrhage or what? Yeah, so in general, the most common uh, side effects of aspirin is actually affecting the stomach, having an ulcer uh, in the stomach, and uh, also, also leading to uh, uh, ulcer disease or uh, what we call GI bleeds, which is like sometimes people can have uh, vomiting of blood or they uh, passing stool uh, that has blood in it uh, that we may or may not be able to see. Uh, sometimes they turn black, but uh, that has to be a lot of amounts. So we, we end up seeing a lot of patients with anemia, which is uh, uh, the black count, the red cell counts being quite low uh, because uh, slowly they've been actually dripping, dripping blood or losing blood from the stomach or their GI tract. And uh, that's when we find uh, them uh, if they take, like some people when they take aspirin. And in general, the risk we quoted uh, is about 1% per year among people who take aspirin every day. Uh, I'd like to bring Dr. Farku back in. Hello. Hi, Libby. Thank that, you for uh, sharing with me here. Okay, that's um, much, much better. Go ahead. Wonderful, wonderful. I think it's, there are a number of important caveats I'll quickly summarize. This is an important milestone because it means that we look at the risk-benefit of any intervention. But you must, we must be very careful here. This, anyone who's had, an, had a heart attack, a stroke, has coronary artery disease, disease of the, of the uh, cerebral vessels that go to the brain, those folks need to be on aspirin. This is not pertaining to those individuals. And we've had a lot of questions about this. Aspirin should be given to everyone who, ha- who can take it who has cardiovascular disease. That's number one. So this applies to people who have never had any cardiovascular event and only to people over the age of 60. So if you're between the ages of 40 and 59, you need to consult with your doctor because maybe the risk-benefit equation is in favor of taking aspirin and and the bleeding risk is lower. So we must, those are the two important caveats. You must not have had an event before to be eligible for this guideline and you must be over the age of 60. And then the bleeding risk, as as Dr. Chow points out, is is the issue. So those are the issues really out on the table today. I think there are tests to see uh, if you are uh, a bleeding risk, are there not? Well, well, I mean, bleeding risk really comes, um, you know, sometimes the, the, the seminal event happens when, when you have that first event of a major bleed. And so you have to look at your history. If folks have a history of ulcer disease, as, as, as pointed out, if folks have had a history of bleeding, trauma, then, then those are individuals that are at higher risk. So there are some bleeding scores that can be applied. But in general, you know, folks start aspirin, it's over-the-counter, and many times they don't even consult with their physician. They just take aspirin because they're told take aspirin a day. And that's what this is a, this is sort of a reflection on that, that we don't want to routinely give aspirin over the age of 60 uh, unless you're a very low bleeding risk. So it's a run of risk benefit equation. There's always a little bit of benefit. There is a benefit here. But the problem is it's outweighed by the bleeding. And Dr. Chow, um, why does it, take so long for these recommendations or changes to percolate to get to people? Yeah, part, part of this actually has been um, ingrained into our culture in a sense. So this whole story started from a couple of very important landmark studies uh, back in uh, the uh, late 70s and early 80s called the Physician Health Study and also the Nurses Health Study. They studied uh, aspirin uh, use, and it turns out that uh, based on those studies, uh, the, um, the benefit was about uh, a 10% reduction of heart attacks uh, if you take it more than 10 years, and also about uh, up to 18 to 20 percent of reduction of stroke. Uh, you would take it um, uh, over 10 years uh, for uh, reducing strokes as well. However, uh, these uh, groups are actually uh, uh, healthier individuals and the risk of bleeding is lower. But when you start um, studying in the bigger populations, then they realize that uh, the risk of bleeding or complications actually also outweigh, as Dr. Faku has mentioned, uh, everything that we do, uh, either as a medication or procedure, uh, has to be balanced on both sides uh, to be beneficial when, when we do the math, so risk versus benefit. So, but, but, but since asp- an aspirin a day to keep the doctors away has been such an ingrained sort of theory for many, many years, it's actually taken 
um, most recently, in about the last five or six years, for the medical community to turn around to focus more on uh, the risk side versus the benefit. Hmm. Better to focus on an apple a day. Let's uh, take a call from Howard in Kitchener. Hello, Howard. Yeah, I just wanted uh, to ask your experts. In my case, I have a aortic valve replacement. Um, it's not mechanical. It's not. It, it's one of those ones that were made out west. Yeah, out the of uh, cat, ones. cat's yep. gut. Or, I mean, yep. uh, cow's gut. Yep. Anyway, the doctors would like me to go on a blood thinner. But I want to know what's worse, a blood thinner or aspirin one a day to help preventing clotting and stuff like that. So, Libby, maybe I can take this one. Please, go ahead. We have heart valves problem all day long uh, as part of our job. So, yes, um, I think you're talking about uh, a bovine or pericardial uh, types of uh, uh, prosthetic valves, and this is commonly that we put in. Usually, we actually keep the patient on an aspirin uh, to prevent clotting, and you have a specific reason uh, to take an aspirin. Um, in general, our discussion today is... Well, that's people, what I've been doing. I've been taking yeah. an aspirin for quite a few years now just yep. because I was told by a cardiologist that you don't want to take blood thinners if you don't have to because yes. they can cause more damage than, than an aspirin can. Well, Too much things, bleeding is not yeah. good for oh, you. Well, either. let the doctor answer, <laughs> Howard. <laughs> You're right in, a, in that sense. We don't like to give any medicine unless we absolutely have to. You're absolutely right on that. But, uh, like, by the way, aspirin is not a blood thinner, so as to say. It's actually against the platelets, which is uh, part of the component in the blood. Uh, while the blood thinner, um, there's certain um, medication called NOACT or anticoagulant. Those are the ones that are the blood thinners. And those are usually given, uh, especially to patients with uh, a irregular rhythm, such as atrial fibrillation. Uh, but if you don't have atrial fibrillation, there's no reason to take it. Uh, and you don't have a mechanical valve, so you don't take it. So having a bioprosthetic valve, which is the one that you have, is beneficial. Then you don't have to take the blood thinner. But an aspirin a day actually helps the bioprosthetic valve to stay clean, um, so prevent clotting from forming uh, to on, the, on the valve. And this is a general recommendation to all our patients who have a bioprosthetic valve. So uh, that, that's actually all my patients who have bioprosthetic valve. Um, unless a very specific reason they, they cannot take aspirin, uh, all of my patients are on it. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, we have to take a break. And when we come back, we will have more with Dr. Mike Farku and Dr. Chiming Chow on this new, I guess, still a draft recommendation from this U.S. expert panel on the use of low-dose aspirin. Before we go to break, the numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, We are talking to two expert cardiologists about some new guidance from south of the border from a U.S. panel of experts regarding the use of low-dose aspirin. And it had been recommended for people at high risk to take it as a preventive measure. For a while, it was kind of seen as a bit of a panacea, but now uh, the word is that it can cause more harm than good, especially for people over 60. People younger than that should consult with their doctors. And uh, Dr. Farku, one of the things that, that I see that I found quite interesting is that the increased risk of bleeding from aspirin occurs pretty soon after you start taking it. Do you have uh, any detail on that? I've seen it both ways. I think there's an early hazard of bleeding based on, you know, you may have an underlying condition that is is unmasked by taking aspirin. You have patients who have early colon cancer. Actually, they bleed early. Sometimes we find the cancer because they bled and we look for a cause. But it is a chronic, as Dr. Chow pointed out, it is about 1% bleeding risk per year overall, and it does go in, the, uh, go in a chronic phase as well. I want to make one very important point, though, here that's incredibly important. We are not talking about low-dose aspirin and its risk in older folks. We're talking about low-dose aspirin and its risk in older folks 
who have not had a cardiovascular event. That's very, very important. So I'm going to say this many times over. If you've had cardiovascular disease and you're on aspirin, you've had a stent, you've had bypass surgery, had a heart attack or a stroke, this does not apply to you. Continue with the aspirin. It's safe. It's effective. It's one of the best therapies we have. So that's really, really important here. So we need to, you know, get this question really well framed. This is about primary prevention. Taking aspirin because you just think it's going to prevent a future event. And that's where the bleeding risk comes in. Okay, let's, uh, I think on that note, take a question from John in Newcastle. Hello, John. Hello. Go ahead. Um, I think that the doctor might have just answered my question. I am 80 years of age. I have a condition called subclavian steel, and all of the blood doesn't get to the brain, and some is, uh, goes back down the arm. And I've been on an aspirin a day for six years, and is this subclavian steel is under uh, observation. I have had no problems. And as the doctor stated to me, my own, you could, you know, die of old age first. So take it away, doctor. I think you should continue on the aspirin in your condition. Um, Ming, what do you think? Well, I think, you know, depends on uh, why you have that uh, subclavian steel. If this is because of a, uh, what we call a sclerotic change, which is a uh, blockage, uh, then it's, um, that's a good reason why you should be on uh, an aspirin a day. Yes, and there is a, a partial blockage, I guess, why the blood is, you know, some of it is not. Yeah, this this guideline does not apply to you. Yep. This guideline applies to the person who doesn't have an underlying condition. Well, I would that's, say that's thank you 100%, and it's wonderful, the question, and I will get out of the way so others can ask questions. Okay, thank you for that, John. Um, yeah, I guess it's always very important to be very specific about who this applies to. Um, and, um, you know, it's... it's Maybe I'm going to make a point. I'm going to go, go out on a limb and make a point. This guideline, by the way it was released into the public is going to cause more heart attack and stroke and more cardiovascular disease than it's going to prevent bleeding. This is a dangerous, dangerous message, and it has to be very well specifically framed. It is very important. And I'm going to go out on the limb and say we're going to look back on this event and look back on our data in Ontario. We have administrative data across the province, and we're going to show there was a spike in events because people stopped aspirin that should never have stopped their aspirin. Because so they really need to frame this question right. This is this is vital. Well, well, yeah, I think it's it's pretty clear. You're not supposed to take it preventively, right? No, but there's secondary prevention, right? We're talking about in secondary prevention, we need to take it. In primary prevention, where you've not had an event before, that's what it's referring to. Yeah, I think that's 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 what a lay person would call prevention. Yeah, this has happened before in, in history when uh, certain news comes out and uh, certain medications, then people uh, stopped it on their own because they got the message confused. So Dr. Fakou's uh, message is very, very important that uh, as if people had a history of heart attack, stroke, or uh, known blockages, uh, please don't stop your aspirin. And but for people who are taking it on your own, you have to consult your doctor. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, you shouldn't do very much on your own when it comes to uh, deciding to take something or stopping to take something. That's probably the message here. And that you may be harming yourself with the bleeding if you take it on your own and you don't need to take it. Okay, well, I, that, I, can, see, I can see from our uh, call board that, yes, uh, it's confusing for people to hear. So I'll, I'll take one more from Lee in Nobleton. Hello, Lee. Hi, um, thank you for taking my call. I have uh, an issue. I had a stroke, not an artery. I had a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, is what they called it. Yep. And I'm just, and they did put me on a baby aspirin once a day. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if it's safe for me to continue or if I should see my neurologist again. Yeah, similar to what Dr. Faku uh, said, uh, the guidelines uh, doesn't apply to you because you have an event and there's a reason why you need to be on aspirin to prevent the, the thrombosis or the clot from forming again. Uh, we're specifically here talking about uh, people who doesn't have any of these uh, history of stroke or thrombosis or, or, or heart attack. Then they 
will have to be very careful not to take aspirin on their own. But for you, you have so, a reason to take it. Yeah, so even though it was, I know when people think stroke, they think automatically the arteries, even though it was more related to the veins. Yep, it can happen in the vein as well. And I think, you know, one yeah. of the interesting discussion with the AstraZeneca um, uh, vaccine that we used to take or used to have, uh, a venous thrombosis in the brain is one of the concerns that we have. Okay. Well, okay. thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Lee. Uh, I see what you mean about the, the confusion. So uh, before I take one more call, just to repeat this again, this guidance is for people who've never had... Uh, any kind of event, a heart attack or a stroke or w- whatever it would be. If if you are taking this after uh, you had a problem, then you should continue doing that or just talk to your doctor. I'm going to take a call from Diane in Scarborough. Hi, Diane. Hi, Levy. Nice to talk to you. Um, I got to say the doctors have been so clear about what they've, you know, explaining about the aspirin. I take bisoprolol, the beta blocker, and I wondered, uh, I have been taking the daily dose, but I do it every second or third day because I do bruise easy with it, and I'm 77 years old. So. But what do you take it for? Uh, I, I had had... Um, I guess the fluttering in the chest, you know, you'd feel your heart kind of thump and then you'd get this rapid... Um, heartbeat. Uh, I don't know, heartbeat, but these flutter, that I like, that's what I call them, flutters in, in the chest. You know, you just feel like it's just racing and then it settles down. But the doctor put me on that because my dad had had uh, uh, blood problems, strokes, and eventually died of it. So, okay, I'll um, uh, Diane, thanks for your call. I'm going to let the doctors answer. Thank you very much. There is an association with between abnormal heart rhythm and stroke, but that's not related to the issue at hand. So if you take a beta blocker like the Saprolol for fluttering in your chest, this is for symptomatic relief most of the time, and you can continue it. I would consult with your physician but this does not apply to the risk of, uh, of bleeding or blood thinning or using an antiplatelet agent like aspirin. It's a different question. So please okay, so I really don't need to take it then, in other words. Yeah, better check well, with you know, your you doctor. Should, you should consult with your physician because they prescribed it to you and you need to understand why you're taking it. Yeah. We believe you're taking it because you've had some fluttering in your chest and this helps to relieve some of those, yeah. those symptoms. Okay. okay, thank you very kindly. Okay. Um, we only have uh, less than a minute left. So, uh, Dr. Farku, what would you like to leave us with? I think that whenever we take therapies over the counter on our own, we need to be careful and consult with our doctors. We saw this happen with ibuprofen and with naproxen and other agents that are used for painkillers. People take these drugs. We don't ask about it. So make sure you talk to your doctor that you're on an aspirin. You've taken it because you've, or you may have been on an aspirin, and now this guideline has changed your mind or has informed you in another direction, and uh, you need to be under the guidance of a physician here. But I think it is a message of risk-benefit. Even though we have a small benefit when we take aspirin, the risk outweighs the benefit many of the time, and bleeding is a major complication that we need to be aware of, and we don't want people to present the major bleed as their first presentation. Okay, and Dr. Chow, 20 seconds. Well, similar to Dr. Faku, and uh, the idea for all of us, when if we are taking a medication, we have to make sure that we know why we're taking it. Uh, this is actually a very important message. So thank you. It's been an honor to be on your program and working with Dr. Faku. Oh, well, thank you so much, both of you. We really appreciate it, Dr. Mike Farku and Dr. Chiming Chow. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Thanks. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.